Amen. Well, I double-checked and triple-checked, and I have my message with me, and it is the right one. And so I am going to be in the right passage today. I can't, can't, can't say I don't learn from my mistakes. So first, check 2 Corinthians. There it was. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every, every word be established. Now, this is referring, there's two locations in God's word that speaks to this idea of two or three witnesses. And both locations referring to uh, the idea that a truth cannot nor usually be confirmed when just one person says it or knows it. Right? If it's a real truth, then someone else is going to know it other than you. Now, there's the legal side where Christ was being persecuted and brought before the magistrate. And people were coming with testimonies against Christ, but not everyone was agreeing. They had story, and then the person had a different story, but Christ was still condemned illegally because by Jewish law, someone could not be condemned on such a high crime in the mouth of only one witness. Old Testament law required that two or three people clarified and confirmed of the event before someone could be accused of it. So in that context, what is the Apostle Paul saying in verse 1? Well, remember... At the end of this book, he's talking about the false prophets, the false teachers in the church of Corinth. And he says, when I get there, the accusation will be made face to face. He's basically saying, look, I'm not a coward by writing the accusation by letter because I'm afraid to say it to your face. I'm writing it by letter because they need to hear it now. But if you're still there when I get there, you better believe I'll make the accusation face to face and I won't be the only one. Why not? He said, because by our Jewish law, it can't just be me making the accusation. But don't worry, there are others who see what I see. There will be two or three witnesses who will speak out against this false prophet, these false prophets, and you will not remain if you're still there when I arrive. He says, I'm going to get there. I'm going to arrive. Third time, I'll be there. Who are the other two witnesses, the one or two witnesses? Well, we can assume Timothy, Timotheus. Uh, We can assume Titus is one of them. We don't know who the Apostle Paul is referring to, but I think those are safe assumptions. Going on to verse 2 now. I told you before, and foretell you as if I were present. The second time in being absent now I write to them, which heretofore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again, I will not spare. So I had stated how the Apostle Paul was basically now wrapping up his letter and saying, the things that I said aren't told you just because I'm away. You know, social media is a rare beast. A lot of times we say things on Facebook, we say things on Twitter, we wouldn't have the courage to say if we were in a room of people. People are often uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when it comes to social media versus the real thing. You'd be shocked at how docile and how timid some of these social media warriors are and the things that they write. You would be shocked at how little they actually say when they're looking at you. The Apostle Paul is saying the exact opposite of that. He said, these truths are so strong, I'm not just saying them from afar, I will say them when I'm there. And he said, I will not spare, meaning I'm not going to go easy on you. Basically, this letter is me going easy on you, he's saying. (laughs) So if you want the easy me, you've seen it, now get out. Or fix the problem. Because when I get there, the hammer's coming down. Verse 3, since ye seek proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. He says now to the believers in the church, he says, guys, here you are asking for proof that I speak on behalf of Christ. You're asking for proof that I speak in the power of Christ. You're asking for proof that I'm not a reprobate, uh, rebellious, 
uh, runner from God. You want proof that I, as Paul, am leading you towards success and not destruction. And in verse 3 says, just look at what I've already done. Look at what God has done through me in the past. God has not been weak through me towards you. God has been mighty through me towards you. Essentially, the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm a little perplexed. Do you not remember our past together? Do you not remember what you saw of God in me and through me? Do you really need more proof? Now, there is more to this text. We're going to read all the way to verse 13 throughout the message, but I'm going to end there now, and let's talk about today's message, which is entitled Proof. So let's look at the first point today. I have three points this morning. Proof of the apostles' power, proof of Christ's presence, and proof of the church's perfection. In this text, the Apostle Paul, you're going to see that word proof mentioned multiple times from verses 1 through 13 because he recognizes the people he is dealing with, they need to see with their eyes before they believe. Now, I don't actually belittle that. I understand that faith does need to be founded on truth. You can't just have faith on a hope, faith on a dream, faith on a desire. I can't just say, you know what? I really wish I could fly. I know I can fly. I'm going to fly. It doesn't work that way, all right? There has to be proof that I can see that someone has attained the ability to fly. I have to notice that it can be done, and then I have to have the ability to trust that I also can do what I've seen done by someone or somewhere else. You say, well, Pastor Russ, that's not how it is with salvation. That is exactly how it is with salvation. When people get saved, they are looking to Scripture, looking at Scripture, which is the ultimate proof, which is the ultimate truth. And when they see that truth, they read what God has done for others, what God has done for you, and what God wants to do for you. You see the truth. You see the proof. Now you have to have faith and accept what you see as proof and truth for yourself. Faith is not blind. If someone that told you that they're lying to you, blind faith is foolish faith, because then you can believe whatever you want and claim as faith. No, Christian faith is based on the proof of Scripture, which is why the world wants to destroy the truth of Scripture. Because if they destroy Scripture in your eyes, if they make the Bible to be of no consequence, if they get you to believe that the Bible is false, you now have no proof for your faith, and your faith is empty. Your faith is not in you because you see me. Your faith needs to be because you see God's Word, and you believe God's Word. So the Apostle Paul is dealing with a group of believers who understand that, but have forgotten what they've already seen. God's already given them the proof, but they want more. And so in these verses, the Apostle Paul is dealing with that. So let's now begin with the first point, proof of the Apostle's power. So the Corinthian church is essentially, I would imagine, through uh, you know, not through the, the, the telling Paul directly because Paul was not the one who spoke to them. He sent Titus. I essentially believe through Titus when he comes back, he says, the apostle, he says, Paul, the church is doing great. 
They responded really well to your first letter. Most of them are doing a lot better, successful, but there are still some in the church who doubt you, Paul. They haven't seen you for a couple years. It's been a while, and they're not sure that you're still the same man you once were. They're not sure you're still following God. These false teachers have convinced them that you're a liar, and now some people, not all, but some in the church want proof that you are still following God. The Apostle Paul must have had great restraint not to deal with that first. He only addresses this towards the end of the book. I mean, if it was me, I would have been hitting that like right away. What? Are you guys serious? You really don't believe that I love God? You don't believe that I'm giving you the truth? I would have addressed that immediately. Not Paul. Most of 2 Corinthians, the first part was Paul encouraging them, commending them, saying, great job, well done, you made some good choices, keep it up. Then at the end, he says, now let's talk about those of you who don't trust me. Let's talk about those of you who doubt my power in Christ. So letter A, spiritual leaders cannot ignore spiritual attacks. In verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, uh, basically, it's been, I've been easy on you. When I get there, I won't be the only one dealing with the mess you guys have created. Two or three witnesses, me and one or two others, we are going to address this. Why? Because you false prophets are causing havoc. You are destroying people's lives. You are hurting people. Words hurt people. Ideas hurt people, especially when people believe those ideas and those ideas are false. You know, the world wants you to believe that, hey, it's no big deal what people believe. It doesn't hurt you. It's not going to hurt your kids. You know, let the world, let people, let teachers teach whatever they want because they're not actually hurting your kids. They're not putting their hands on your kids. They're just teaching ideas. And ideas never hurt anyone. What are you talking about? Ideas hurt people because ideas eventually turn to action, right? For there to have been an action, there had to have first been a thought. And the thoughts come from ideas, usually of other people. The world is trying to, to lull you into a sense of uh, timidness, ignoring the fact that the world is causing action in your family through their ideas. It's a spiritual attack. The Apostle Paul says, I am not going to allow this spiritual attack in the Corinthian church to go unchecked. I will address this. And that is the responsibility of every spiritual leader. He say, well, Pastor Russ, go get him, boy. I'm not the only spiritual leader in this room. You're a dad, you're a spiritual leader. You're a mom, you're a spiritual leader. You're a grandparent, you're a spiritual leader. You're a spouse, you're a spiritual leader. Because a spiritual leader is anyone who has someone in their life who is looking for God and you know the way. You're a spiritual leader. He said, well, that cuts me out. I'm not married, and I don't have kids. You have friends? You're a spiritual leader, right? You're included too. None of you are exempt. Do you have someone looking for God? Yes, in your life. Do you know the way to God? Yes, you are a spiritual leader. And it is your job to deal with spiritual attacks. You cannot let those go. The Apostle Paul was very intense in his desire to protect this church from spiritual destruction. Letter B. When a leader's future is questioned, allow their past to answer. He says in verse 2, I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. When I come back, I'm going to deal with you, right? I'm not going to spare. Verse 3. Since ye seek proof of a Christ speaking in me, which to, in you were, and to which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you, 
For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. He says, all right, you want proof that what I claim, when I come back, I'll come back in the power of God. Verse 4 says, it's a statement, I will come back in the power of God. That's verse 4. That's the future. He says you can believe the future because look at verse 3. Do you remember the past? When I was with you before, was I with you in the power of God? Well, yeah. Well, then you better believe verse 4. When I come back, I'll still be with you in the power of God. It is not right to ignore the history of someone's character when judging their future. It is, it is only right. It is biblical to recognize, is this leader going to go down a good path? Should I follow them? Are they good for me or are they bad for me? Do not listen to what they are saying now. They will say whatever you want to hear. Look at what they were doing then. That will tell you where they're going to take you. Every political season, this truth is renewed over and over again. For anyone with eyes to see, Politicians of both parties will tell their constituents whatever you want to hear. Stop listening to what they say and let their past tell you what they will do in the future. Because if you do a, uh, a research project on most political leaders, you will find they just keep doing what they've always done. Very few political leaders, nationally, state, local, very few actually change directions in their political career. Most, once they're locked into a political career, keep going down the same road. And it's the same for leaders of all kinds. Most leaders, once they've started that path, most keep doing what they've always done. So you can have a pretty good idea of what they're going to do based off of what they did. And if there is going to be a change, that change should be so dynamic that there's no doubt in your mind something's different. And then give them the time to prove that something is different. Because if there's no proof that something is different, expect more of the same. So two lessons. Lesson number one, if you are a leader and you want people to believe what you're going to do, the only evidence is what you've done. Make sure what you've done proves what you're going to do or choose a new profession. Number two, if you are following a leader, don't listen to what they say. Pay attention to what they've already done. And that will tell you where they're taking you. Letter D. I'm sorry, letter C. Our greatest source of power does not come from within, but rather from him. Verse 4, the apostle Paul says, I will come to you and I will come in power. And look at verse 4. He says, when I come in the power, I, well, he actually says, I'll come through weakness, right? Originally, I'm going to be weak because in my own, I am weak. But those who live, live through the power of God. So basically, the Apostle Paul says, whatever power I've got won't be me. It will be the power of God, which answers the question, am I still in the power of God? Yes. Am I still weak as a person? Yes. Fortunately, I will not be living in my weakness. Fortunately, my weakness will be overshined by his power. I am in the power of God because I am resting in the arms of God. And when I return to you, I will return with the power of God, not the power of Paul. There's a very dangerous step a lot of leaders take. They start in the power of Christ. And people see that power, and they recognize the power of that pastor, of that spiritual leader. 
and, and it, it, it encourages them. It gives them a reason to trust. Say, if I see you walking in the power of Christ, like I trust you implicitly because if you're walking the power of Christ, you're going to do what's best for me, for you, for God. That's the kind of person I want to surround myself with. But sometimes leaders experience that power and have convinced themselves, I can still have the power and I don't need Christ anymore. And so they step outside of Christ, and now they continue to display what looks like the power of God, but God's no longer in the equation. And now they say, listen to me, I have the power. You say, Pastor Russ, how do we know when they're in the power of God, and how do we know when they're in the power of Christ? Well, first of all, if they're in the power of God, they will reflect God, they will point to God, they will follow God, and they will direct you to God. When they're in the power of themselves, they will reflect themselves, they will point to themselves, they will point you to themselves, and they will direct you towards themselves. Their messages, their, their truths, their direction will be about them. They will use them as the shining example of what you should attain. Those in the power of God will use God, and they won't just say it, they will show it. The power of God is the power that changes lives, not the power of the pastor. All right, proof of the apostles' power. Let's go now to letter B, uh, number two, proof of Christ's presence. In verse 5, the apostle Paul now flips it onto them. He says, okay, you want proof of me? I give you, I'm going to give you proof of me. Look at my past. And if you need more when I get there, I'll show you some more proof. I'll show you more of the same, all right? That's the proof. Now the apostle Paul turns the tables and says, let's talk about you guys. He says in verse 5, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. He says, hey, you know you have Christ unless you don't have Christ. You know the truth unless you don't know the truth and therefore are not saved. A reprobate. He says, I'm, I'm good with you proving me. I, I can do that. I've already proven uh, that I've got Christ in the past and I'll do it again in the future. I'm not unwilling to show you that proof. But he says, you know what would be more helpful to you? Prove yourself. Look to your own self. Instead of always asking, can the Apostle Paul be bigger? Can the Apostle Paul be better? Can he do more? Ask yourself, who am I? Where am I going? And what am I doing? Prove your own selves. Proof of Christ's presence in your life. Letter A. Before we judge the spiritual conditions, we should first practice on ourselves. <laughs> How many Christians get a kick of judging other Christians? Too many. That's the answer. Too many. One is too many. There's a whole lot more than one doing that. How many religious individuals have gotten away with not actually ever being saved because they spent their whole religion judging other people? Too many. You see, true religion, the Bible defines, is action. True religion is helping the fatherless and widows. True religion is doing what God says. But let's, uh, let's understand something. Religion doesn't save you. Religion is just a reflection of God's heart. That is religion. But doing these things, reflecting God's heart, doesn't save you. Christ saves you. Once you're saved, now you should practice true religion which is not judging other people. True religion is helping other people. Are there times where we should evaluate the choices, the lives of others? Yes. 
when their lives affect you, you should be making a judgment call on that. When their choices, their ideas impact your children, you have every right and every responsibility to judge those who are impacting your life and your children. You better be judging them. Because if you just let them do whatever they want and they continue to impact your family, you will feel the consequences of that. But if their life is not impacting you, their ideas are not impacting your children, there is no purpose to judging them. There's no reason to make a verbal statement of condemnation regarding their choices when it does not impact you. Instead, you're better served recognizing what choices you are making and how those choices are impacting others. Letter B. It is easier to see Christ in others when we can see him in ourselves. In verse 5, he says, examine yourself, whether you're in the faith, right? Practice it on yourself first. Prove your own selves. Jump down. How that Jesus Christ is in you. It's hard to see Christ in others when you don't know how he looks. The best way to recognize how Christ looks is purely, directly, no middlemen. See, here's the problem. A lot of Christians are not living in the power of Christ. A lot of followers of Christ are not living with the knowledge of what it means to be directed by the Holy Spirit. They, they know they should. They get the lingo. They understand the phraseology. They, they, know, they know that it needs to happen. They don't know how it looks, so they're not doing it themselves. So what inevitably do they do? They think, all right, for me to know how Christ looks and how his power looks, I will look at someone else, see what they do, and define what Christ should look like through them. Look, it's better than nothing, but the problem with that is you're not usually going to get fully Christ, right? You're going to get partly them, partly Christ. So that means if you take five people who all live for Christ but partly also have their own issues, you're going to say, oh, it looks like this when you follow Christ. But wait a second, it also looks like this. But hold on, it looks like this. why, Why does it also look like this? Because none of these five look the same. Which one do I choose? Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, right? Or, or, well, that one looks most like me, so I'll choose that one. That will be the easiest to be because I'm already almost like that person anyways. You see the problem? And so inevitably, you attach yourself to a church, to a pastor, because you don't know what Christ looks like in you. So you find someone who claims to look like Christ, but also looks pretty easy for you to look like them because you almost already do look like them. And now you've convinced yourself, I look like Christ because I look like them. And so now you believe If I look like them and they look like Christ, I also look like Christ, right? Wrong. (laughs) You see, the reason Christians look differently when they look like Christ is because God doesn't cause us to all be robots when we become saved. When we become disciples, God does not put us in an exact mold. We are all uniquely made originally when we're created, and that doesn't change when we're reborn. Our uniqueness still remains. So when you see a Christian following Christ, you get a unique picture of how that unique person looks when that person follows Christ. It will look similar. You will see similarities between Christians following Christ, but none of them will look exactly the same. The only way Christians will look exactly the same when they follow Christ is if they're following each other. That's when they all look exactly the same. And you, you, your red flag should go up you should recognize this is a danger zone. There's a problem here. When everyone looks the same, then, then it has to be they're not following Christ. They're all following someone in this room. And if I could find that person, he would make it very clear they're all trying to look like that person. Because the reality is we're all unique. 
and we will all look slightly different when we all follow Christ. So I hate to break it to you. If you've been thinking, how do I look like Christ? Let me see Pastor Russ. You're heading down the wrong path. Stop it. I'm not going to be helpful to you. How do I look like Christ? I'll look at Pastor John. Stop it. He can only take you so far. Look at Christ. You say, well, Pastor Russ, there's a problem. I can't see him. Well, you're looking in the wrong place. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Doesn't get much clearer than that. Read those Gospels. Keep reading those Gospels until you have a very definite view of how Christ looks. And then you, in your unique way, you reflect Christ. Do not reflect me, and I won't reflect you. Letter C. Our good works are done for Christ, not for his followers. Verse 7. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. That can be a little confusing, that verse. Read it again right now. Verse 7. i going to give you a moment. Now here's what it's saying. Apostle Paul, let me paraphrase for you, is saying, do right whether you can prove I'm following God or not. Don't wait to do what's right until I prove to you that I am a follower of Christ. Even if I was a reprobate, even if in your mind you believe me to be a reprobate, do what's right. Why? Because you're not doing it for me. You're doing it for God. Christian, dad, mom, teenager, stop. Stop doing what you do to impress me. Hate to break it to you, I'm not easily impressed. So you're going to get a long, hard road ahead of you if that's your goal. Stop it. And stop doing it to impress those who maybe are easily impressed. You're only hurting yourself. It is not about impressing people. I care how my actions affect you, impact you. I do not care if they impress you. I'm saying that honestly. Left hand, right hand raised. I'm saying that honestly. (laughs) I don't care if I impress you. I only care how I impact you. That's not the same thing. Stop trying to impress people. Stop wondering and worrying about what people think when you worship God. I love it. The other week, we were singing, worshiping, and a couple people just stood up, even though we were seated, they stood up. They wanted to worship God, and they couldn't contain it. They stood up. That was beautiful. That, that is true worship right there. When our congregation, some raise their hands, some don't. Some stand, some sit. Uh, in the past, I've seen someone go to their knees while we were singing. Like, that is awesome, right? It's not about what is everyone else doing. We're not trying to look like everyone else. <laughs> Will I impress them? Who cares? How will I impact them? What will my choices, in what way will my choices affect people? Not in what way will they be wowed by what I do. So verse 7, is the Apostle Paul saying, don't do it for me. He's already clarified. I am in God's power. I will prove that again for you because you need it. I will. But pretend that I don't. Would that change what you do? If so, you're the problem. If you found out that 
all the pastoral staff, there's four of us, me, Pastor John, Pastor Ethan, Pastor Jordan. If you found out from a year from now that all of us came forward and said, you know what? We actually don't believe in God. We, we all this time have just been saying it, you know, we, we wanted an easy job. <laughs> easy job, right? We, want, we wanted a job. So we did it for the money. We don't believe God. And uh, see ya, and we're out of here. And we completely just gave up all of our beliefs and completely just out, laid it out there that we, we, we never believed it to begin with. It was, we were living a lie and walked away, walked away from the ministry. Would you also walk away? You say, Pastor Russ, that would never happen. Well, I mean, I, I know that, all right? I know Pastor John, Pastor Ethan, Pastor Justin. I know myself. We do believe, but I'll tell you this, that has happened in many churches. That has happened nationally with, with some famous individuals, authors who wrote some pretty good books and then come to find out, they said, actually, I'm not really saved, never was. Some famous musicians who wrote and sang some really good songs and came out and said, you know what? Actually, I was playing a game I was never saved to begin with. This does happen. And almost every time, you know what happens? When they leave, people follow and leave too. What does that tell you? These people weren't following God, were they? They're following men. If I ever did that, I, I'm not going to. Please don't consider this as a possibility. I'm just telling you, if I, had, if I was ever to do that, your immediate response would be, well, that's too bad. We liked him, right? I hope. We liked him. Too bad. Who's next? We need a new leader, obviously. God give us a new one that actually believes what they say, right? That would be your response. Not let's disband because it's all a lie. No, just because a leader is living a lie doesn't mean you have to also live a lie. And just because a leader comes out saying they lie doesn't mean you need to believe truth to be a lie. You need to believe what you believe because God says it. You need to do what you do because God asks it. And then verses 8 through 11, this is, we're going to go through this part quick. Proof of church's perfection. Now, when we talk about the church's perfection, we don't mean without sin. That's not possible. No one can be without sin this side of heaven, save Christ. He's God. Other than God himself, we're all born sinners. We all live in sin. We all die in sin. We're just saved from our sin, okay? When I say we die in our sin, that means we die with sin still in our lives. But God justifies us. God washes that sin away in the sense of when God sees us, he doesn't see sin. He sees Christ. But that doesn't mean the sin's eliminated from our life in this life. We still live in our sin. And so the church of perfection doesn't mean without sin. That word perfection means maturity. It means growth. It means healing. It means unity. A broken bone, when it is healed in this word, this word could be, oh, that, that arm is now perfect. Not that it, you can lift up every all weights. It means it's back to its, what it should be normal. It's normal state. A perfect church does not mean that it's without sin. It means it's a church acting as it should act, as God intends it to act, in unity, in love, in purity. Perfection is spiritual maturity, doing what is normal for you to do as God sees it. And so letter A, do not determine truth by the speaker. Instead, you must verify the speaker through truth. Verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth before the truth. The Apostle Paul says, look, I can't act against the truth and change truth. I can't do anything against the truth. The truth will be there whether I believe it or not, whether I follow it or not, whether I, I act out it or not. Truth is truth outside of me. And so the Apostle Paul says, all I can do is confirm the truth. All I can do is teach the truth. All I can do is follow the truth. I can't create the truth, and I can't, I can't make new truth. I can only change what I do because of truth. A lot of people, they determine truth because of what they hear. Oh, I like that guy. Pastor Russ is a great guy. He says that it must be true. Well, I've never told you that, so that's a lie you've told yourself. Just because it comes out of my mouth doesn't mean it's true. It's your job 
to prove me by truth. Not to determine truth because I said it. But I'm not going to just include myself there. That includes the evangelists you listen to on the radio. That includes the evangelists you watch on the TV. That includes the pastors of churches you've been to, will go to, the churches you visit. Do not say, oh, there's new truth. I never heard that. How do you know it's truth? Well, he just said it. I didn't know that person was a source of truth. We need to make a new religion then. And let's, let's all go to this place because we have found the source of truth. This man, this woman, whatever they say is automatically true. Let's like give them a platform and let's all just have one church and listen to this person. We know that's not the case. They are just speakers of truth. They can't create it. They can't change it. They can only say it. But just because they're saying it doesn't mean it's true. Parents, it is so very important that you explain this to your children. But you will not be able to explain this to your children if you yourself don't act on it. And they say, well, mom, dad, why is that true? Well, didn't you hear Pastor Russ? Well, now you're just saying I'm the source of truth. Well, Pastor Russ said, look, I'm not the Bible. If I'm saying it, that should get you to think. And then you need to make sure that what I said is true. And then if you do, your source is now the Bible. You don't need to use my name in vain or otherwise when explaining truth to your kids. Use the Bible. I'll point you to it. I'll show it to you. The Bible is your source of truth. I can't change it. I can't create it. I can only give it. The church will become perfect, mature, healed, unified when the source of truth is God's word, not men. Because when the source of truth becomes a man, the church is not living as it should normally. Letter B, Christians must not ask the church to suffer for them. They must be willing to suffer for the church. Look at verse 9. For we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong. And this also we wish, even your perfection. This is not the only time the Apostle Paul has said this or alluded to this truth. Multiple times in this book, he has said some form of this statement, that I am willing to go without so you can have more. I am willing to suffer so you can find success. I am willing to hurt so you can find healing. I'm willing to be weak if it means you are strong. Christians leave churches offended. Why? Because the church didn't sacrifice for them. That's not our calling. Our calling is to glorify God. And in glorifying God, we are here to encourage you. We are here to serve you, but not the way you want, the way you need. Your job is to sacrifice for God. God will sacrifice for you, but if he chooses not to in a particular time or place, don't get offended. Accept that there's a moment in time where I'm going to suffer so someone else can gain. I will be weak. I'll suffer the weakness of the flesh today. I'll go through the trials of this position, this calling, this service, and it's hard and it hurts. I'll do it for the sake of someone else. And then letter C, and we're done. God desires your healing, not your destruction. Verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. This is what God wants for you. In fact, I'm going to teach next Sunday's message is going to be mostly on just that one verse. There is too much there for me to teach right now. But that is God's goal for you right there. And then back up to verse 10. What does the Apostle Paul specifically state? 
He says, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification, encouragement, not to destruction. So verse 11 gives us the heart of God, and it is a beautiful thing, and next week I'll, I'll open that up to you. But verse 10 is the antithesis. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not going to do this, destroy you. I do want to bring you this, verse 11. If you find yourself under or with a spiritual leader who is destroying you spiritually, destroying you emotionally, causing you great anxiety, causing you great depression, that destruction is not from God. That leader is not in the power of God. Now, if that anxiety and discouragement is due to you running from sin and that leader states from God's word and you're just anxious because you know you're living in sin, that's different. But if that spiritual leader is attacking you and abusing you emotionally or spiritually, that is not God's intention. If anyone had that ability, the Apostle Paul had the ability, not the authority, the ability to do so. He was a powerful servant of God. If anyone could hurt anyone, the Apostle Paul could hurt someone easily. But he says, that's not my job. That's not why I'm here. I don't want your destruction. I want your encouragement. I want your success. A church finds healing when its leaders want your healing. But when its leaders want your obeisance, when its leaders want your respect, if that's the end game, they will do to you whatever they need to get you in line. It will destroy you. When a leader wants your healing, you are most definitely on the right path to finding it. I want your healing, desperately. Pastor John, his wife, my wife, Pastor Ethan, Caitlin, Pastor Justin just moved here, his wife, Caitlin, they all, we all want your healing. None of us are here to use you to make us look better. We are here to make God look better to you because that and he is where you'll find healing. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for the truths that we saw today. The reminder of how important proof is in our life. It's not a bad thing to want proof, to need proof. But I pray once it's given to us, our faith would grow. We would not keep asking for more proof once it's been received. I pray we'd recognize the need to prove to others, not just to expect their trust, but to earn, gain their trust. I pray that we would remember our goal is not to look like each other. Our goal is to look like you. We will be unique in how that operates, but always, always trying to imitate Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.